Welcome to the Better Money, Better World Show, a podcast project of Impact Capital Managers, or ICM. ICM is a group of investors who believe that by solving the world's greatest challenges, we will generate market-leading returns for investors while bending the arc of human history towards sustainability and justice. ICM members have backed companies ranging from Tesla to Coursera to Vital Farms. Collectively, ICM's 60 members manage over $12 billion. I'm your host, Daniel Pianco, a co-founder of ICM. My day job is co-founder and managing director of Achieve Partners, a leading investor in education and human capital. Here on Better Money, Better World, we'll explore the stories of our investor members, the companies we're building, and the limited partners allocating money to investors who don't just seek alpha, but also to leverage their capital to build a better world. Episodes will be released each week and feature a new guest telling their own unique investment stories, strategies, and perspectives. And we've got lots of great guests lined up. So if you're excited about what this show might teach you about impact investing and the people behind it, make sure you subscribe to Better Money, Better World, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to highlight the work of impact investors and grow the community of impact investing. Now, with that out of the way, let me introduce you to our Better Money, Better World guests. Since its founding in 2008, Equilibrium Capital has gathered over $4.5 billion across its platform of sustainability-driven investment strategies. Equilibrium became one of the largest impact native investment firms by not referring to itself as an impact investor, but instead by developing strategies for institutional investors wherein sustainability drove the financial returns. Equilibrium created a series of thematic financial products that appealed to institutional investors, such as Equilibrium's carbon transition infrastructure and controlled environment food strategies. Scaled circular economy deals created the impetus for Equilibrium's success most recently leading an investment in Perfection Fresh, which builds massive greenhouses in Australasia. In the U.S., Equilibrium has backed long-vine-growing company Finca, App Harvest, Little Leaf Farms, and Revel Greens, which each can produce 20 times the food versus field agriculture with its much more efficient greenhouse technologies and facilities. Dave started his career at McKinsey and as a general partner with OVP Venture Partners. Dave has, for 13 years, been a professor at Northwestern's Kellogg Business School, where he talks about building an army of sustainable investors by teaching and encouraging students to pursue sustainable investing. Welcome, Dave Chen, to the Better Money, Better World podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I've been impressed by the Equilibrium Capital franchise from afar. It is one of the great um, early environmental investing franchises. Can you give me the elevator pitch on Equilibrium and the different pieces you have? First of all, <laughs> thanks for saying what you said. I, I it's, it's, it, Given our long, arduous uh, journey, it's hard, to, uh, it's hard to actually imagine being described that way. So thank you. Um, the elevator pitch is uh, we are obviously an investment manager. Uh, we founded the company to develop uh, sustainability-driven uh, investment strategies where sustainability was uh, the source of the competitive advantage and therefore the source of the returns. We expressed that in the asset class called real assets. 
and in particular, we focus on the food, agriculture, and I would generically call it the climate and carbon transition or adaptation uh, sectors. And the very last thing that I think is unique about us is that very early on in our uh, company, we uh, focused exclusively on the institutional investors, most specifically uh, pensions, uh, both private and public, as well as sovereign wealth funds. Can you describe a deal that best represents the equilibrium story? Yeah, I I think that uh, our key uh, claim to fame with our institutional investors is that we have historically been, I would call it the first institutional uh, investor in a in spotting a trend uh, or spotting a sustainability opportunity, which by definition means that almost every one of our strategies is not only a first-time fund, it's a first-time institutional strategy in the sector, which is a pretty heavy lift. And the key there is for us to, to, to hit the mark when the trend is now so obvious, but yet not so obvious that everyone rushes in, but it's still early on in that first third uh, of the life cycle. And that's hard to do. And so I'll give you the deal that we are most proud of. And, and in many ways, we, were, we hit the right strategy. I think we were a little early. And um, you're, you're never early. You're just just a little ahead of the trend. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, uh, when you're early, it means time or money uh, and uh, time is money. And so so you uh, uh, and the deal that I would highlight is our Arizona uh, waste to energy uh, deal. And 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 we were very, very early in 2014 in the creation of what would now be called circular economy or waste to energy, we saw that uh, animal waste uh, was uh, going to be an incredibly important source of uh, energy and, uh, and especially because of the methane pollution, but also the methane value that it would have a, uh, that it would be something of value. I think what we underestimated was how uh, immature the ecosystem of suppliers, uh, how immature the understanding of institutional investors uh, was at the time that we started. And so I would say that this is a uh, this is an asset, you know, a significant asset, eighty to one hundred million dollars, where uh, it was also of a scale that puts it in the top five assets of this type in the United States. Uh, and, and we did it at a time when, as I said, the equipment, not the technology, the equipment, the engineering, the operations and management and maintenance providers were all learning on the job. Most of them had never done anything in the category, let alone something of this magnitude and scale. What exactly did the product, the project do? Like when you say waste mat, what does that mean exactly? We convert the uh, manure and urine of 30,000 dairy cows into pipeline injected methane. Very cool. Okay. All right. And to put it in perspective, because no one has any idea what I just said, 
30,000 cows produce enough poop and urine to create enough methane to effectively power about 7,500 homes for a year. Wow. That's a lot of methane, All right? And that, that today in 2022, I can go into any institutional investor and, and their reaction is, yeah, that's great. I get it. In 2014, the kind of reaction we got was, hey, listen, uh, Dave, uh, you guys are clearly smart and everything, but I have a billion dollars in midstream oil and gas, and it's really doing well. And I don't understand this cow shit thing, all right? And this sounds kind of flimsy, kind of cute. And we do pipelines and storage, all right. And and I and I and I can't emphasize the other end of this, which is the engineering firms that knew how to do what we just described were were were, were nascent. And so we endured years of getting this thing up and running, having to swap out technique uh, technology and, and equipment, having to swap out uh, vendors. But we kept at it and our debt holders uh, saw the way that we as a firm responded to mistakes, uh, setbacks compared to other uh, asset managers and asset owners and and energy developers in similar kinds of fields. And I think that we gained a lot of respect over time of people that stuck with a project, not not just by being stubborn, but by continuously learning and uh, and continuously incorporating uh, the community and and learning from them. And today, I mean, it, it it was an arduous arduous journey. But today, we have one of the most successful plant facilities, and we're incredibly proud of it. And I'm incredibly proud of the, our team and their willingness to both stick to it, but also learn, adapt. And, and in many ways now lead the industry in our experience curve. So how did you get in? I presume this is a large investment, right? If you're talking to large institutions and 30,000 cows, how were you able to unlock institutional capital early into a field like methane extraction? I think we underestimated that, that a big chunk of our um, fundraising activity was actually going to be an education. And you can't just start off with the PowerPoint pitch. You actually had to stop and educate uh, your institutional investors on what was the source of the value, what was the technology, the magnitude of the problem, the magnitude of the sustainability implications, and the magnitude of, if you got it right, the magnitude of, of, of the gains. And I know that that's always a part of your pitch deck, but I don't think we realized how much education was required. And we took that, and, 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 and frankly, it, that was why the fundraise was well over two years. I think we took that, that understanding and that experience. And in 2017, when we launched our Controlled Environment Agriculture Fund, we knew that when we said things, even if we said it articulately in a PowerPoint, that the visual image, the paradigm shift of what 
the institutional investor who has an incredibly high IQ point. What, but what they heard, we had to really spend the time to shift that thinking. So when we did the, 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 we took all those lessons from that, that very difficult fundraise and embedded it into our uh, uh, controlled environment agriculture product launch. And we cut a four minute video that, that wasn't, wasn't a replacement for the PowerPoint. All it did was show in graphic ways through video and, 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 and the image, this is a greenhouse. And I need you to uh, walk away from this three to four minute video with just three messages. Wow, that's really big. Wow, that's really high tech. Wow. This is actually production agriculture. So big. This is a 5 million square foot temperature, humidity, CO2, completely enclosed, steel and glass construction. So drone video inside of a greenhouse where you could easily see. You got to ride a golf cart to get through this thing. It's a mile long. All right. Number two. It's full of computers and charts. You're monitoring CO2 by the minute, all right? You're monitoring plant growth. Wow, this really is high-tech agriculture. And third, wow, those trucks are going to Costco. And, and sitting outside of a greenhouse at the truck bays of this greenhouse installation were 10 truck bays and every morning, 20 trucks leave here. So this is not farm to fork. This is, this is production agriculture at the scale and quality and quantity necessary to serve the most demanding retailers. We pack that into three minutes. And, and, and I'll tell you, our, our, our institutional relationship sales team was at first very reticent to use a video. You know, look, our, our, our investors are really smart and I'll never get them to sit through a video. And I said, look, if you don't do this video, we will spend the next four months educating them. And if you can just show them that this is what we are talking about, they can now hear the significance of what is embedded in our PowerPoint. What's interesting is you never mentioned sustainability. And you've told me in the past that is a key reason why you're able to get institutions involved. When you started Equilibrium, can you talk about how you dealt with the impact story? All right. So I, I think it's really important that when we founded Equilibrium in 2007, I had, uh, it was in, in some ways a result of the work that I did. You know, I came out of high tech and venture capital, but I spent from the late 90s uh, to, to the time that I founded uh, Equilibrium, uh, uh, doing a lot of work in uh, uh, regional economic development on behalf of our uh, two states in the, in the Pacific Northwest, on behalf of the governors. And one of the reasons that that was critically important is that I got really close to uh, business leaders that had built their businesses on sustainability. And, 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 it, and it dawned on me that sustainability in their minds was not only a sense of responsibility, but more importantly, they had built these incredibly successful businesses, multi-hundred million dollar businesses, and they used sustainability as a competitive advantage. 
And so when we founded the fund, uh, we embedded that very simple notion into it. Your question about impact, though, I think takes it one step further, and that is that um, early on, uh, when the word impact investing was, was created, there were all sorts of debates around impact investing, whether, in fact, um, profit was good, whether, in fact, too much profit was good, whether, in fact, you should be even be profitable. And, and, and those were all proper debates and conversations that needed to take place, but they created an aura or a positioning around that word. And we were going to be targeting institutional investors. And, and, and candidly, if we, and, and by the way, times change so fast. In 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, when we were getting started, sustainability was not what it is today. And, and, and the idea of climate change and new industries, climate as a risk, these were not really well understood. And so we might work three years to get an appointment with a, a senior portfolio manager in an institution or a CIO in an institution. And frankly, just very candidly, we couldn't afford to spend the fact that we just got this appointment after three years. I can't afford the first 30 minutes of the of the conversation explaining or actually backtracking on why impact investing isn't really what it is and no we're not that we needed to go right into the application uh, that we had spotted and why it was a it was an important application that created alpha and opportunity for this institutional investor do you think today, if someone were trying, and no one can replicate equilibrium, but if someone were trying to build a similar size and institutional focus, that you would similarly uh, advise them not to focus on impact? I think yes. And, and, and I'll tell you, um, if you look on our website, you'll never see the word impact investor. You will see intentionally impactful. Uh, you'll, use, you'll see the word impactful. And, and, and that is that we are intentionally using sustainability to drive returns and to drive our, uh, you know, contribution and our, and our positive attributes. And I think that there are two things that, 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 that I would be cautious about with the word impact investing. One is that it has gotten better, but it still has complementary words to it, like catalytic capital, impact first. You know things that that connote the fact that you're 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 you, you may have you may have a, a balance that you have to strike. We take an opposite tact, which is that sustainability is the source of our returns. It just is, and 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 I think the second aspect of the word impact investing that that I would caution on is that it might steer you towards capital sources that call themselves impact investors. And, and, and I would just caution that that, that that segment or sub-segment of the sources of capital oftentimes um, are difficult to access and may not have the critical mass of capital that's necessary to actually uh, drive many of the strategies that we're now creating. And so, you know, just from a market segmentation standpoint, you've got to look at where the sources of capital are and how you tap into them.
You also talk about each fund as a product, and you're you're almost like building a set of products for institutions to bomb. Can you can you talk about that approach? Yeah. When I uh, joined uh, my uh, venture capital firm, this is before Equilibrium, uh, because I was the, the new GP, I was sent to, uh, to, uh, to talk to a, uh, an LP that wasn't act, uh, sent to go talk to an investor that we would very much like to be an LP, but none of my predecessor GPs in my firm had been successful with. And so I went into to, to this very, very important uh, investor. And I said, listen, I don't think we're ever going to get you as an LP. Uh, so I don't want to use my hour trying to convince you of, uh, of us. But I would like to know why you're such a successful CIO. And, 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 and so for the next hour, he said, great. And so for the next hour, he talked about, I have, I have a, a, a high-level strategy and I can fill it with these products and I have this very different way of thinking about risk budgeting, and I can fill it with these kinds of products. And the problem with these products is this. And, and as, a, as a GP in a venture capital firm, my immediate ego-driven reaction was, I'm not a product. I'm an investor. And after about 20 minutes I, uh, of listening to him, I came to, oh, my God, we're in the financial services industry. and Therefore, we are a product, and a product has market, the product has a value proposition, the product has a differentiation, and the product has a distribution channel. And this guy is telling me what exactly we don't think of ourselves as. And I've taken that, that incredibly formative conversation throughout my investment life, and then when we uh, formed equilibrium, we asked ourselves, who are we trying to serve institutions? How do they, what are their key buying factors? How do they think about portfolio development? How do they think about where products fit? And then on the product side, how do we then create the differentiation, the scale, the size, the uh, soft attributes, as well as the hard attributes necessary to meet their buying criteria and the way they think about building portfolios. And so we have, and how do we do that within our primary strategy and primary investment thesis? How do we take sustainability and make it palatable and attractive, which doesn't sound like a big lift today in 2022, but in 2010, that was, that was critical thinking. Did you get that LP to invest? We uh, look. We, we, we today, um, you know, in our history, we have formed about four and a half billion dollars of institutional capital behind our strategies. Our active strategies right now are uh, about two billion dollars of institutional capital, and uh, and I think that we will continue our path here <coughs> over the course of the next year to hopefully, you know, continue to increase that. Uh, in you know and add to that that capital base, so we're very fortunate. We're very lucky. We now have a a, a tremendous LP base that, that again we're very lucky to have, and we 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 don't take it for granted. And so I think that that kind of thinking, I think, has helped us tremendously. 
because we didn't go into this with reputation. We didn't go into this with an anchor LP. We, we started from a blank sheet of paper. And when you look out at sort of what's happened to the industry, what you do is now kind of called infrastructure, for lack of a better, for, for many people. Everyone's forming it, you know, not everyone, but, you know, all the large firms, <laughs> you're shaking your head. Yes, almost every large firm is creating an infrastructure fund. As more and more people have adopted the language you're using and gotten into this sector, how do you distinguish equilibrium today from when you did when you were just getting started? This is the uppermost thing on my mind for the last two years. When one of the leading distressed debt shops in the world launches a sustainable infrastructure fund to save the planet, you know that everybody is in it now. And most of these firms will come in with the throw weight and the reputation of being a tier one global, you know, multi-strategy mega financial services firm. And here we are, you know, uh, a small player. And, and so two things. One is um, we have to never lose the courage of our conviction and the willingness to take risks. And, and that means that, that as hard as we have worked to build the, our learning curve, our domain knowledge, uh, our experiences, our, our, our learnings, we have to keep using those on our own account and continue to take risks and leverage it leverage that competitive advantage for as long as we can to build a critical mass portfolio. When you go and pitch an asset owner on potentially working with you, as opposed to working with the most recent distressed debt fund that raised a big infrastructure vehicle, how do you pitch that to the, uh, to the ultimate seller of the business? I think it's changed a little. Uh, if you had been five years ago, uh, we would have just uh, focused on the fact that the sustainability trends that we spotted created a market opportunity that either reduced risk or increased the, uh, the outcomes or the output. And therefore, between those two things, we generated a higher rate of return than market comparable. I mean, that was the basis of the story. Today, we would, we would also make much, much more visible the fact that the sustainability itself is one of the outcomes that that not only do we monetize it, it's also one of the things that is of value. And, and, and so let me give you two tangible examples. When we launched the Controlled Environment Agriculture Fund, which, as I said, were these you know massive uh, 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 initially greenhouses, but it will spread to other controlling, uh, other forms of agriculture where the management of, of, of climate is critically important. Today, that's climate adaptation. That's the fact that weather is changing everywhere, climate is changing everywhere, and agriculture is ground zero for, for, for risk and downside uh, of weather. And so we would now talk much more visibly about the fact that what you're not only investing in is something that actually generates long-term resilient returns, but is also part of a long-term building of a climate-adaptive, climate-resilient food system. And by doing that, that is also retention of value for the long term. In the case of the 30,000 cows, we'll talk about not only the homes that it replaces from fossil energy or the trucks that it replaces from fossil carbon, 
to a natural-based set of carbon as a fuel source. We will also now talk about the carbon sequestration, uh, the methane sequestration, but, but those also directly translate into how we generate our returns. But we are much, much more focused now on, on making sure that they understand that this is also an infrastructure that's part of the transitioning away from fossil fuels. So we will emphasize not only the, the returns aspect of spotting this trend, we will talk about the infrastructure for the future and how this is also a cost-effective, cost-advantageous building of infrastructure that we as a society, as a people are going to need in order to, to, to pave the way into the future. And that's a that's a message that I don't think five years ago, six years ago, we would have emphasized as much. What are you going to emphasize in five years? I think that 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 one of the core values of our firm is, or the core missions of our firm, is to be able to do what we do because we are highly mission oriented. Uh, to be able to do what we do at scale, and so I think that one of our uh, strategies as everyone now is running into this field uh, as, 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 as competitive strategies is to figure out ways that we can build a karetsu of investment managers or funding sources around us to scale up the number of partnerships because our objective, our mission as a firm is to do this at scale, make a difference, try very hard to make a difference. And and I don't I don't I don't mean that in any arrogance. It's just that it we have people that love to use the word planetary scale problems, uh, and and we need to take heart and really embrace the fact that that these problems are that way. And so, a key part of what we have to be working on is how do we scale, replicate, uh, and 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 do this in conjunction with others so that we can not just have an ego boost of, of doing something important, but actually make a difference by, by, by scale and moving the needle. One of the ways you make a difference is you're a teacher. And, and one, one time, I love the story you told me once, is that uh, a dean asked you why you were so popular with your students. And, and you said you were raising an army. And what army are you raising? I've had the, uh, I've had the privilege of teaching uh, sustainable finance and impact investing at uh, Kellogg now for 13 years. And I, I had the, the privilege of also starting up the Stanford GSB curriculum in that same area. If you teach for 13 years, something miraculous happens. And that is that your oldest students from 13 years ago are now in their late 30s and possibly 40 years old. How the hell did that happen? And what that means is that if you can, and I use a very odd term, I always saw that my job was not only to teach how the tools of sustainable finance really reflected the basic investment and finance tools that we learned in, in the other classes and, and what were the, the, the different techniques that were being used. So. I saw my job as not only teaching the techniques and, and the framing of these investment vehicles, 
But I also saw in a very funny way, and this is a very funny phrase, giving them permission to pursue a career in this, where you can actually build a great career based on creating value from your own value system. And, and that it's okay. And hence that term, giving you permission. And, and my hope is that by planting that seed within these students that, 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 that had a deep sense of wanting to do that, create value from their values, that at some point in their careers, they would remember that, get the courage to, to do that, uh, and uh, and remember that they had the permission to do that, and uh, and uh, and and remember those tools and put them in use. And so, when one of the deans at, at at Kellogg in a conversation asked me, "Hey, how come you have so many students that sort of boomerang back after graduation and 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 have a relationship with you?" My answer was, "Because I'm raising an army." And, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, if you teach for 13 years, have an average of 550 students, um, uh, you know, that's five, 600 students. If you then go on to create a global competition that gives students permission to create financial investment vehicles that deliver sustainability at scale, well, then you can influence two, 3,000 students over a 10 year period to, to, to have the permission to think this way. And if you help create an, a, a global consortium of faculty members across the world that now numbers about 350 across 210 institutions, across 39 countries, these are all educators out of business schools. Um, then you can then create even more leverage uh, in, in arming an army. I want you to just describe your schedule for the last 13 years doing this, because I think that's part of what makes you such an amazing contributor to the community. Kellogg has been very kind to me in that um, I teach a full quarter class. So it's a, it's a full class. Uh, I've done it for 13 years. And uh, I teach it on Thursday nights from 6.30 to 9.30. And that allows me to, during winter quarter, and I'm very proud that in 13 years, I've only missed two classes. So, so I fly in from my home in Portland or wherever the hell I am around the world. And oftentimes it's international. It allows me to fly in on Thursdays uh, uh, and I generally like to get there about one o'clock on Thursday. Uh, I'll hold office hours for the next four hours, five hours, and, uh, and then uh, step into the classroom at 630. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then I sort of rinse and repeat for 10 weeks. That's an amazing contribution to the community that I just want to applaud you for. I, I want to ask, as we kind of come towards the end, who were your role models when you were getting started? Oh, all right. So um, we just got done doing this. We named our uh, conference rooms in our new office after the folks that, uh, you know, that old saying, you stand on the shoulders of giants. And, and sometimes these are forgotten names. Uh, so uh, I had the privilege of getting to know and learn from Ray Anderson, who was the uh, good old boy from the South 
that built interface carpet uh, and uh, into one of the sustainability leaders. Uh, uh, and he had great lessons about what was sizzle and what was substance in, in sustainability. And that sustainability was all about the nickels in the sidewalk that, that, that both that, that hide in the cracks. And, and he had two lessons there. One was vertical integration. And the second thing is sustainability is not sexy. It's just about picking up the nickels. All right. And, uh, and, and at the same time, he was a master of sizzle. And so he turned uh, interface into one of the first to use biomimicry as part of their product line. Uh, and uh, recyclable. What, what is biomimicry? Uh, the use of of uh, lessons from biology, uh, from animals that 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 have implications for either uh, the way he did it was using uh, uh, the way that animals camouflage themselves. And what he did was he he was one of the first to to invent the uh, the carpet square and the use of of recyclable materials in carpet squares, but the carpet squares use biomimicry to, to allow you to replace squares. So how do you camouflage a floor so that, 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 that if squares get damaged, you can replace them and they don't look like they're out of place. You don't have to replace the whole damn thing, all right? And uh, we learned a tremendous amount from Dennis Hayes, who was the father of, of Earth Day, and his persistence uh, from the 70s to today, and both his cynicism, his sadness, but his enduring optimism. All right. Uh, and uh, we learned from uh, uh, an old friend that we, that we got to know as a result of our regional economic development, one of the most important scaled sustainable farmers in the United States, uh, Marty Myers. And um, you know, many of these folks have passed away and passed on. And, and, and I think that part of our mission as a company is to honor them and what they gave to us. How do you take those lessons? And you've done deals with you know, global pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, including recently like with Tomasek in Australia. Like, how do you take these lessons and distill them down to this kind of global market from Australia to Mexico to the U.S. to Europe with these global investors. I mean, it's such a secret sauce you 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 have. How do you? What is that? You know, people always tell you that they want to be part of the sausage making, and and the truth of the matter is, as you know, Daniel, they don't. And so, you know, don't tell them the story. Don't tell them the long journey. Just get to the point. What's the advantage of what we're doing? How do we work together? Where's the where do the returns come from? Why is this generating sustainable outcomes and impact? Um, that's kind of the basics. We spend a lot of time in our early years because we were so focused on trying to convince people that we did spend a lot of time in the relaying the sausage making. And over the last two to three years four years, we've learned to stop doing that. All right. And, and so, you know, I think probably the biggest lesson we've had as a company is get to the point. It's almost like just put your Tesla in front with a nice charging station and forget about how we got there. Right. Look, the market share is growing. 
<laughs> Stock price is not. And I guess that that kind of my final question I just want to get your two cents on is, you know, we talked a little bit about how the big folks were getting in, you know, the, the private credit fund becoming an impact fund and in infrastructure or the Tomasex getting in. Do you think there comes a point where everybody is scooping up those nickels of impact or sustainable gains? And, and does that make you excited or scared for our future? You know, getting into the um, LCD panel business, uh, you know, making flat screens is a terrible business because, because it's, it's, uh, it's just a terrible business because the prices get cut in half every few years, but it's great for the consumer. So I think that, 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 that yes, uh, our competition is going to increase. And so we've got to get sharper. Uh, we've got to continue to think about who we partner with, but this is going to be absolutely the most important thing is scale. And so Everybody getting in the business and picking up nickels in the sidewalk, we will have a better world. Can't think of a better way to end uh, LCD displays to nickels on sidewalks to making the world better uh, by creating products that people don't even realize they need, but at a better price and, and changing the world in the process. Dave, you've inspired an entire generation of uh, students, and hopefully folks will find this podcast as exposing as I do. Uh, and I love how you have positioned, repositioned impact investing in your own way and, and built an institutional business around that. Thank you so much. And, and, and thank you for being so gracious. This is Marika Spence, Executive Director of Impact Capital Managers. Better Money, Better World is made possible in part by ICM a nonprofit network of over 60 best-in-class fund managers investing for superior returns and meaningful impact across North America and beyond. Our members share a passion for partnering with entrepreneurs and scaling companies that will realize a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable future. If you enjoyed today's conversation, tune in for the next episode of Better Money, Better World. Tell your friends and visit us online at www.impactcapitalmanagers.com.